My name is Samuel Tadros. I'm a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom, and I'll be moderating our next panel. Throughout the day, we have heard from many distinguished speakers about the existential threats that Christians in the Middle East are facing. ISIS's takeover of Mosul was perhaps the most uh, dramatic incident that brought the world's attention to the problem faced by Middle East Christians, but it is hardly the only one. In Syria, ISIS is joined by other Islamist groups, Al-Nusra Front, the Al-Qaeda Syria's branch, and other groups that might have different strategies and techniques, but that all share a hatred of Christianity and Christians. In Libya, we have seen the cancer spread outside of the Levant, as we watched the brutal beheadings of Coptic Christians, followed by Ethiopian Christians, at the hands of an ISIS branch inside Libya. Lebanon hangs in the balance as the threat of a spread of the larger Sunni-Shiite conflict or of the Syrian civil war into that country might doom the fate of its Christian population. This is also the case in a place like Egypt, where we already have a local branch of ISIS in the Sinai that has already ensured that the northern eastern part of that peninsula is Christian Fry, no longer a place where any Christian lives, driven out by the bombings of churches and the kidnappings there. As we've heard the stories of what the problem is or the plight of Christians in the Middle East, we also heard from many distinguished speakers about what could be done in the form of humanitarian aid and in a discussion about the larger context of American grant strategy. To the last panel falls the task of actually specifying what can be done to solve the problem. In order to do that, we have enlisted four distinguished speakers that have given the issue much thought in their own writings and in their uh, different talks. The speakers whose bios you have already um, in, the, um, in the papers that were handed to you will be in the order that they will be speaking. Uh, we will start with Mindy Belts, who's the editor of World Magazine and the author of a forthcoming book on Iraq. She will be followed by the Reverend Johnny Moore, who's the author of Defying ISIS and co-founder of the Cradle Fund. Following him will be Joseph Kassab, the president and founder of Iraqi Christian Advocacy and Empowerment Institute. Lastly, we'll be speaking Kirsten Powers, who's a columnist at US Today and the author of The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished speakers. Good afternoon. I want to give you a picture uh, before speaking about a specific solution. I don't know that any of us will be that bold, but um, I uh, was in Iraq in March, and I stood atop one of the churches in one of the emptied cities of Nineveh Plain, uh, just north of Mosul, 
This was a church that was built in the fifth or the sixth century uh, before Christianity reached England. A church that inside its mostly demolished chancel had uh, a Syriac or Aramaic scripture uh, in the archways that were uh, date, that dated back to 1569. So before uh, there had been any sort of Jamestown settlement of any sort of uh, Christianity as we know it here in this continent. And so looking through the binoculars from atop this ancient church or through a gun scope um, from an area where there had been a continuous Christian presence for over a thousand years, you could see in the distance the black flags of ISIS, the front line for the Islamic militants um, that they have staked out in the middle of Nineveh Plain was barely a mile and a half from where I was standing. Um, ISIS is actually building trenches there. We watched them with their diggers and their front loaders. Um, they're, di they're building trenches about five feet deep and five feet wide. Um, I I'm sorry, five meters deep and five meters wide, and they're putting concrete barriers in the middle of them. Why are they doing this? because they fully expect that there will be some sort of armed offensive to take back Mosul, and they're getting ready for it. They intend on fighting that. Um, last August, ISIS overran 22 of these ancient Assyrian villages in Nineveh Plain. We've heard a lot about that today so far. And, and then about 10 to 14 days later, the Kurdish forces, the Peshmerga, came in and took back about five of those cities. And this is the area where I was. Um, I was standing, uh, I, the church that I was in was in Bakofa, um, and it is currently in the hands of a Christian militia known as Dweknausha, which is a unit of about 500 mostly Assyrian Christian men. I toured Bakofa in their company, uh, and we were close enough, actually, and I just realized I have this on my phone, so I thought, if we're quiet enough, I'll play this. We were actually close enough that they were picking up the radio transmissions of ISIS. We can... If you heard, one of them was calling one of his compatriots Bin Laden. They, they, their call names were Bin Laden and Taliban. And um, the guys who listen to this all day long told me that they hear them speaking English, Arabic, Urdu, Pashtun. They are men who come from all over. So we all know that ISIS has been on the march since last March, that the Kurdish forces moved in, um, that they have come in and, pr and protected some of these areas. I think it's important to realize, though, that they, um, they came in and retook some of these towns house to house. This was not a, a swift battle. Um, it, was, it was a very difficult battle. They received support from U.S. airstrikes, as most of us remember, 
just in time. I spoke with, with Kurd, Kurdish officials in Iraqi Kurdistan who were actually shredding documents because ISIS was that close. And short of U.S. airstrikes that came there in the middle of August, they, they don't know what would have happened. What's less known about this is that since that time, nine months since the ISIS invasion of Nineveh Plain, um, the, the Kurdish forces with this alliance of other militias have been holding a 640-mile front that stretches from the border with Syria to the border with Iran. And that is a military feat. Uh, they have been obviously supported by U.S. airstrikes. Um, that has been intermittent. It has been essential. But on the ground, they have been holding this front line. No one can return to the cities where I was because it's simply too dangerous. It's too close. ISIS has um, 81 millimeter mortars, and they are shelling regularly. I can attest to that. Um, those mortars have a three to four mile range. So these, these areas even that have been reclaimed are still very much in danger and no one will allow residents to go back there. No residents actually want to go back there at this point. So as we walked through these cities, and it's truly an eerie thing. If you think about the opening of the Book of Lamentations, it says um, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. And it's one of the eeriest things I've ever I've been in some of these towns back in 2000, 2007, 2008. And to go back and the baker's not baking, the school children aren't going to school, monasteries not functioning, and, and nothing. It's completely empty but for a goat or a donkey um, is, is truly strange. One of the soldiers with Dwight Narsha said to me, you have probably seen worse than this, but there's nothing worse than a city without people. It's a graveyard. And so you will see the checkpoints, and you'll see soldiers and weapons. And overhead, you can hear the F-16s as they cross the sound barrier. Um, and you are looking out, and you know that in the distance is this, is this line of battle. And one of the soldiers there said, Kurdistan right here is fighting on behalf of the whole world. So who are these people fighting on behalf of the whole world against ISIS? Um, the group that I was with that I've mentioned, Dwight Nalsha, um, is an Assyrian group. They, their name comes from Syriac, and it means sacrificers or self-sacrificers. They formed last summer. Their commanders are training and organizing about 500 men. Um, they are working in shifts of 250 each. I would estimate, and it's only an estimate when I was there, that they probably had about 200 guns. They're only able to work in these shifts because they don't have um, enough weapons and they're sharing weapons. Um, one of the commanders who helped form this militia and this is a man, keep in mind for these people, um, this is a man who is helping to free Assyrians who were kidnapped 2005 to 2008. This is a man who himself was kidnapped in 2007 and was held by al-Qaeda in Iraq for, uh, I believe, five days. 
there was a dramatic negotiation for his release. They were going to pay $30,000 in ransom. And at the last minute, he was able to escape and was very glad that the ransom was never paid. These are the kind of people that are forming these militias. He said, after Islamic State advanced in Mosul and Nineveh Plain, we concluded that just calling for help at the political level doesn't bring anything. We start to see it is our task, our obligation, to participate in freeing our land. It's not acceptable to watch our lands taken by terrorist groups and expect the Kurds to come and liberate us. And we just watch while the Kurds fight. It's our land and our people, so we have to be active. Um, Dwight Narsha has been, as I said, sharing weapons, sharing food that's being provided by the Kurds. Um, they have funding from Assyrians living overseas. They actually received night vision capability, which has raised them in the eyes of everyone, because uh, even the Kurds don't have that. And they told, they, it came from a country in the West, not the United States, and they said that I should never say where it came from. <laughs> and they have enough weapons that I'm going to listen to them. Um, and they are getting some training from former American soldiers. I was, uh, I was you know, a little bit surprised. We've all seen the stories. Um, we've been talking, I've talked with a few of you here about it here today. It's a problematic area. I myself coming back through uh, border control, entering back into the United States, was um, held up for two hours and questioned by our own American uh, officials seeking to protect us, uh, but was questioned just about this aspect of it. So it, it's a very difficult and a controversial thing, but I will tell you that they are receiving training from American soldiers who are there in differing capacities, uh, from Americans who are there who have military background um, and are um, working on the ground with them. Not surprisingly, this is all controversial, and we've heard some of that today. We've heard a few different uh, comments about, about the militias. There are a number of clergy in the region who oppose them and who naturally would from a theological perspective. Um, the Chaldean Archbishop uh, Bashar Warda said, we as a church have made it clear from the outset that we are against a separate Christian militia. We suggest that our young people, if they are so inclined, join the Kurdish or Iraqi forces. Um, and actually, I had this encounter when I asked one of the, the, uh, the Assyrian militiamen with his gun, I said, have you fired that gun yet? And he said, unfortunately not, but I hope to. And, and I, was, I was getting translation at that point from an Assyrian priest. And the uh, Assyrian priest said, he said, I hope to, but I'm saying hopefully not. I hope he never fires his gun. So there is, within the church, there is this, this, these differing views. Um, but there also are church leaders who see that their only role, their only hope, I, would, I should say, in holding the 640-mile front line is military intervention of some sort. And, and at this point, they have the Kurds to rely on for that on the ground. Imagine Baltimore this past week with no National Guard. These communities, as I say, have been, you know, even in the time that I have been going to Iraq, which was shortly after 9-11, 
and I've been going there continuously um, since the Iraq War began. Um, these communities have never had real military protection, real police protection. What we assume will happen if our own communities here in the United States get into trouble, and we assume that the police and the National Guard will show up. They haven't had those um, kinds of solutions. And what they face now, as you've heard uh, repeated today, is they face seeing their communities, their communities are completely, completely cleansed. And, um, and they see themselves as having no other option. One of the Assyrians uh, leaders there in the region said, we fear that what we will be left with are only two solutions, a police state or a Sharia state. And we would like a citizenship state. We would like a state where individual rights are respected regardless of uh, ethnic identity or religious affiliation. And how could we here in the United States want less for them than that? Ten days ago, uh, more or less, Dwight Nasha did see some action. They, were, they encountered about 18 ISIS fighters coming toward these villages that I'm, uh, I've been describing. Um, they fought them and killed two of them, and they escaped without uh, having fatalities. But I'm, I've been told by the, the soldiers who are there that they are seeing more and more mortars, uh, uh, mortar firings coming from ISIS, and that they are improving in their accuracy and their strength, their range is growing. So we know that on the other side that, um, that the intent is serious, they intend to fight off whatever force comes at them, even in Mosul. And um, they intend to, you know, and they have proven to be a very sophisticated adversary. And so this is the sense in which the Assyrians who have lived in these communities continuously for thousands of years feel that they have no choice but to be armed. I asked one of the militia commanders, you could probably be in Germany or somewhere else, why is it so important to be here? And he said, this is our link to our history and to our future. This is where our forefathers put down our roots, where we have our heritage. Now that we see what ISIS did, our mothers crying, our children without shoes, our people with no home, there's extra reason to be on the ground here, sacrificing our souls to preserve our land and our people. So thank you. My name is Johnny Moore. I'm, I'm, I'm just so pleased to be here with so many people that I, I believe care as I do about the situation. And I think a lot of you, uh, probably like me, feel sometimes isolated, uh, knowing a bit more about what's happening than people are willing to admit or people even know. And so there's something very, very powerful about being uh, in, in a space like this. But, but actually, I, I was probably introduced to this crisis differently than most of you. I have zero connection to Iraq or Syria. I'm not even a Catholic or an Orthodox Christian. I'm not even a, a Protestant in the traditional sense. I'm an evangelical, you know, whatever that means. Uh, I really 
had zero. I, I have no family in the military. I, you know, I don't have anybody that fought in Iraq. I, you know, I, in fact, I spent most of my time going to India when I was in college. I went there 14 times, and I married a Brazilian. I had zero connection uh, to that, that part of the world. But I had a mentor, and my mentor um, is, is a famous pastor. His name is Rick Warren, and he's traveled all around the world doing lots and lots of interesting things. And by happenstance, I ended up in a meeting with him in Jordan. And the meeting was convened by the king and by um, Prince Ghazi bin Muhammad, the prince in charge of religious affairs. And I sat in that room, in the side of the room, as I listened to three cardinals and five patriarchs and representatives of Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant communities and a few evangelicals uh, from all over that region in August, a year before ISIS took over Mosul, describe in vivid detail exactly what was going to happen. They named the actors, they named the cities, they named the strategy, they named the terrorism, and the world was quiet. And I was quiet because, because I wasn't a principal to the meeting. I was sitting in the back of the room, like some, some you know, of you maybe sitting in the back of the room today, but, but I, it's irked me for months. And so finally I decided, because I, you know, I had a little bit of a platform myself in speaking and writing, I would write on, on the subject. And I, I just wrote this article that said we must stand up for Middle East Christians. And uh, the article was, was shared within 24, 48 hours by 50,000 people all over the world. And the next thing I know, I start getting calls from important people asking me to talk about this thing that, that I was just acquainting myself with. And I believe that experience and knowledge is a stewardship and it's a responsibility. And so I felt in my heart that I was somehow called to, to speak up for these people whose uh, language I don't speak, whose countries I don't know, but whose faith I share. And I, I remember you know, not too long ago, I, I live in Los Angeles, and I, I was coming away from a dinner in, in Beverly Hills with the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. I, I'm not Jewish either. I just happened to be there. And I listened as they described the experience of their parents and their grandparents a generation, and it, it was an incredibly surreal experience for me. I, you know, I had just six months earlier been at Yad Vashem for the you know Meshoah commemoration, and you know had had learned about it in school and, and watched you know Schindler's List. Who hasn't? And I, I I was moved by it, but it was moved on a different level when I was hearing these eyewitness accounts. And then I came back to my house that evening, and at this point I was thinking about writing a book about all this, a book that became Defying ISIS. And I, I opened up my email, and I had an email, and the subject line was awaiting death. And the email was written from a pastor in Syria. Maybe some of you have read it. And the email was describing in live reporting as he sat in the darkness of his home, as the mortars were hitting the buildings all around him. And he's writing this email as it's happening. I felt like it was like the diary of Anne Frank or something. He's writing this, and then he says, oh, it just hit us now. And the lights are off. And all I hear is screams. And what do I do? Do I just lay here in my bed and die? Do I run outside and try to flee? And that was the email. And I decided I had to go see it for myself. And so I got on a plane and I went to Iraq. And I'd been to Jordan a number of times. I'd, I'd walked around Zatri. I started to get clued into all of the stuff that was happening. I'd been to places like refugee camps before, to Dab and these other places. But 
but there was something different about what was brewing in, in this part of the world, and it, and it struck me in a really, really paralyzing way. And then I, I just decided, you know, when I, when I was in Iraq and Jordan on that trip, you know, everyone I talked to said, you know, we feel like uh, we have no voice and nobody's talking for us and we feel forgotten. And by the way, this isn't new. This is old. Baghdadi became in charge of the Islamic State of Iraq in May of 2010. He didn't show up out of nowhere. This organi- organization didn't just materialize. This is like, this is like, it's been going on for 10 years. There's not a church left in Iraq that doesn't have a blast wall around its, its building because of the inevitability of a bomb. Like, like, this is not the first time this has happened. It's the next time it's happening. It's just getting worse, and we still have nobody speaking for us and nobody raising their voice. And you were raising your voice because you were in the inside. But I, I just decided I, I would tell their stories, and so, so I did. And I, I researched it, and I, I found slave price lists that list slaves by age and religion, Yazidis and Christians from 1 to 9 years old at about $170. You know, I, I, I heard stories of, of pastors that went across villages as ISIS was coming to them, trying to coach people into what to do and telling people, if ISIS comes to you, they're going to ask you if you, you um, believe in Jesus. And you can say, like, um, just say you follow Jesus because, you know, Jesus is also a prophet, and so maybe, but the chances are it's not, not going to work. And then, and then the pastor told them it's only going to hurt for a moment. And that family he was describing, a husband and a wife and their two kids, like my wife and my two kids, it only hurt for a moment, and they were... And I just decided I would tell their story. And so you know, I guess that, that's why I'm here today. And it's sort of a perilous thing to talk about policy after all these you know, distinguished people that have, have spoken. But I just want to make a few considerations very, very, very briefly. And, and I'll finish in just a few minutes here. And the first consideration is, as best as it appears to me and the, the people I've talked to and the research I've done and the total obsessive immersion I put myself in this subject, is that there is not only no protection for these people in the path of ISIS. There's no plan at all. Now, I'm sure that people sitting around in offices and stuff incubating a plan, but it would begin with not denying that there's a threat to religious minorities in, in Iraq and in Syria. And, and by the way, that, that our denial of this threat against religious minorities is emboldening other actors in other countries. You know, I'm entirely convinced we wouldn't have seen 150 um, uh, Kenyan, mainly Christian college students gunned down by al-Shabaab if we would have re- reacted a little more decisively and told the world it's not okay to kill people because of their religion, whether they're moderate Muslims or Christians or Yazidis or Mandeans or Kakais or Shabaks or whatever they are. It's, that's not okay in the modern world. But instead, you know, we will not frame and analyze and look at this, uh, at this conflict in, in religious terms at all whatsoever. And you can't divorce religion from the conflict. You just can't do it. There are ethnicities involved, and you know, I, I, I feel ex- extremely pleased to have, to have learned what I've learned even today you know, with, with Dr. Mead. But, but I, I have to also say you know, that, that ISIS defies some of this in their own consistency. I mean, this, this is a terrorist group with 90 different countries represented. You know, this, this is a terrorist group that, that uh, ha- has fighters, thousands of fighters from Europe and from and, and, and you know, at least dozens, maybe as many as you know, hundreds from, from the United States of America. You know, just like that, you know, the, the recording you heard. I mean, th- this, is a, this is a terrorist group that something more than ethnicity is, is uniting this terrorist group. It's causing Chechens and Americans and, and second-generation Brits and French people to go over there. And they're, not, and they're going over there in one of two categories. You know, they're, they're doing it because, A, 
they're doing it because they're criminals and they just want to do bad things like you know stop killing people on video games and there's some wild teenager that would be you know committing atrocities that they had the chance to in their own country or they're religiously motivated i mean it just is the fact you know and the people i've talked to you know some of them tell me really scary things they tell me things like this they say we don't like what isis is doing we don't believe in the tactics we would never behead anybody but we believe in a prophecy of a caliphate. And so if you are that very, 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 very small group of Muslims in this country and around the world that believe that nuanced theological point in a religion of a billion people, say it's half of 1%, that's a gigantic number of people. And if you do not necessarily feel compelled um, by their tactics, and you are put off by them as much as anybody else is in the world, if you believe in this prophecy, then there is a certain tugging to become a part of this thing. That's the reality of some of these people. And by the way, it looks awfully suspicious to them that, that, uh, that ISIS controls a piece of land. That, you know, it, at least it did, and, and, it, and there's arguments as to whether it still does, the size of the United Kingdom between Iraq and Syria. And ISIS now, in effect, controls large swaths of Libya and in effect controls the northeast of Nigeria and pockets of Egypt and in Kenya. You know, and that's kind of the second point that I would make, is that we continue to underestimate how serious this threat is. You know, when, when the United States government is engaging in airstrikes, but on average 7 to 15 airstrikes a day, you know, it's the last number that I read, and it's fluctuated here and there, and it took the United States of America four months to kick ISIS out of a non-strategic town in the big picture called Kobani, for months, as opposed to the, to the conflict in, in Bosnia or in Afghanistan, where we were doing 150, 170 airstrikes a day, we're not behaving seriously as the sole superpower in the world. And, and I know that's that, by the way, seems to be a controversial thing to say these days, that America is the sole superpower in the world. But it, 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 maybe it's, you know, it's not a good, good thing to talk about. But, but the fact is, just look at the data. I mean, just the data says no country has the military strength we have. No country has the economic resources we have. So it's just the reality of the situation. And in this time of incredible instability, if the United States doesn't do it, who else will do it? And what we've seen again and again is when you create these vacuums of power Bad actors have the opportunity to foster their dangerous ideology, and someone will win the day if the good guys don't. And the fact is that as the sole superpower in the world, we have a responsibility to be both powerful and to be good, and we haven't handled that region very well, have we? People question how powerful we are now after they've questioned how good we are with the way we handled it. And the United States has to be perceived as both powerful and as good. We have to be perceived as both. And I think... I think we, we need to have you know, a very, very honest discussion with ourselves. You know, I, 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 I you know, totally, totally you know, believe that, you know, that people have to defend themselves or flee, but they have fled. I saw them in their refugee camps. They fled, and they're starving to death. And there's no infrastructure, and, there's no, and the world is quietly paying attention. And when I met with the United Nations in Kurdistan, they told me if they operate at 100% efficiency, the best they can do is take care of 40%. You know, and, and then, you know, ISIS moves onto a town called Ramadi, which we deem is, is, you know, is, is not a priority for whatever reason, which is later was apologized for. But the fact is, when ISIS started meddling in that country, it displaced 110,000 people in one day. You know, the, the Jordan has 2 million Syrians. 
So, so when, when the world cuts off a World Food Program grant or the private sector doesn't step up and make the difference, all of a sudden you have millions of people that now can't provide for their family, and that is an incubator for extremism. The world is not taking this threat seriously enough. We are underestimating the complexity of it. We're, we're operating on an al-Qaeda strategy against ISIS, which is not al-Qaeda. You know, ISIS is not going to be knocked off by knocking off Baghdadi. It's not a bin Laden strategy. You don't kill the leader. And you know, it's, it's just read what the RAND Corporation has written on networks and net wars. It's a different beast. It's a different type of, of warfare. It has to be addressed in a different way. We, you know, we see it. You know, the, the, just yesterday in the New York Times, you know, a, a unidentified senior law enforcement official, whatever that means, uh, in Texas was interviewed by the New York Times and, and asked some very particular questions about how they didn't know this kid from Phoenix was going to attack uh, this, this um, event in Texas because he'd been clearly communicating with, with ISIS sympathizers across the world. And, and the answer the law enforcement official was, there are just so many of them. We have limited resources. So we have to pick those that we follow. And I get that. They're limited re- resources. I, I totally understand it. But, but on the same token, warfare is changing around the world, and, and, and terrorism is outpacing us. That's what's happening. You know, there was a study of, of Arabic language tweets in, in uh, September-ish by the University of Milan. They studied Arabic language tweets in the United States of America that had the acronym ISIS in them and, and categorized them by country as to whether they were supportive or not of ISIS. And in the United States of America... At the height of ISIS, you know, at that, at that auspicious moment, 21.4% of tweets in this country were in support of ISIS in Arabic. Now, of course, that means that over, you know, 79%, 78% weren't in support of ISIS, the vast, vast majority of Muslims in this country. And, and by the way, I'm sure it was flawed, but even if you, if you take out the controls of spam and duplication, and every, it's a really, really alarming thing, isn't it, when ISIS was terrorizing people in the way that they were and are. And the Brookings Institute, they followed up on that, right? And they, they, they identified 46 to 90,000 ISIS Twitter accounts at the end of last year, and one out of five of those accounts picked English as their first language. So, so why isn't the United States of America dedicating more resources on a law enforcement and a, and a homeland security level to the digital threat of terrorism? Because that's the network that's uniting these people and inspiring some, some kid in Nebraska who used to, 10 years ago, would have to go to a training camp in Afghanistan to, first of all, you'd have to figure out how to get to Afghanistan, and, and then you'd live in rudimentary conditions with Osama bin Laden in some mountain somewhere without, you know, water or, you know, or, or I mean, rudimentary conditions these training camps were. But, but ISIS has stepped up the game. You sit in the privacy of your own home, curious with nobody looking on. You don't need to have money to buy a plane ticket. You look at your computer screen in your first language, not your second language, and they've outsourced the training camps. You know, so some kid can decide to take his American passport, as has happened again and again, and get on an airplane and fly to Turkey and move over a porous border, which this week, you know, if you, also a story in the New York Times two days ago or something, the amount of fertilizer that was conspicuously going over the Turkish border you know, to plant things, I'm sure. And this kid can go to Turkey, and he can walk up the border, and he can join ISIS, and then he faces reality, or he gets enthralled by it. But either way, it's a really, really bad situation. Or he can step out of his home in Nebraska or in South Carolina or Virginia or this city or any big city in the country and walk across the street to a synagogue or to church 
or to a community center because the ISIS technique isn't the al-Qaeda work for five years on a complicated strategy that involves training people to fly airplanes and cost millions and millions of dollars. It's a different type of warfare, and they're outpacing us, or at least they're outpacing our, our willingness to engage uh, in, in that new type of warfare. We're underestimating them, and uh, just end by saying that you know there, there are lots of opportunities you know in in the region. I mean, you think that, I mean there are twenty million Sunnis without a leader. The, the Jordanians. One one thing I, I've learned very clearly about the Jordanians is they're willing to be engaged on both a military and a humanitarian level. So so if there isn't the will, which I disagree with, by the way. You know, the latest polling coming out saying that the Americans are more concerned about ISIS than North Korea, South Korea, Iran, and China. You know, by double digits, by the way. But let's say that is true, and there is no will to be engaged in any meaningful way in that, that part of the world. When you have nations like Jordan that are absolutely willing to be engaged, you know, the, the Americans ought to be more involved with the Jordanians. It, it, it ought to be a shame to us all that when I was in Kurdistan, you know, I'm sure people don't tell me the most confidential things. You know, I'm talking to, to people in the interior ministry, and they tell me they're fighting with Soviet-era weapons against ISIS with stolen American weapons. I mean, this is unconscionable, and, it's, and it, it, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Like, get people help. Let people live. Give people the resources they need, and it begins with protection. And difficult questions. Like, you know, there's all this talk about, is there eventually a Sunni-Shia Kurd state? Well, what about the Christians, Yazidis, Kakais, Mandeans, and Shabaks? Where do they go in a Sunni-Shia Kurd? So how, how are these people protected? You know, and I, I just believe that you know, we, we as, as individuals, we have to educate ourselves. We have to provide humanitarian assistance in the way that, um, that as Christians, the Antiochian church did for the Jerusalem church in the first century when there was a famine. You remember that? We provided these resources. I think we have to put unrelenting pressure on government. They pay attention. You know, you know, I was part of a group last week trying to get a, a really, really delightful and, and Mother Teresa type nun uh, from northern Iraq to the United States to testify in front of Congress, nonetheless. She had, she had endorsement letters from Democrat and Republicans. She had uh, sponsorship letters from two reputable NGOs, and she shows up in the consulate in Erbil, and we denied her visa. I mean, it, it's, it's like incomprehensible, brainless policy. Very, very... Very, and, and by the way, we're still advocating, you know, one week later after r- raising, you know, uh, 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 quite, quite a bit of, of, you know, pressure, you know, on the State Department to get this nun to the United States Congress to say, if I wouldn't have gotten out of Karakosh as I'd gotten out of Mosul because she was displaced twice, and by the way, she's taking care of Christians, Muslims, and all the religious minorities. Like, this is just, we're not taking this, we're not taking it seriously enough. And, and you know, and, and on the humanitarian point, I, you know, I just say that every act of kindness on behalf of someone ISIS aims to kill, is a dagger in the heart of ISIS. And what a shame for these people who have survived beheading by leaving their cities or slavery or whatever the other things they would have done to these people if they die of a lack of food or shelter. When there are two billion Christians in in the world, surely we can take care of these people. And... I, I had... I finished it, I promise. Um, I had this surreal moment when I was writing Defying ISIS where I thought, what if I would have lived in Germany during the Holocaust? And I moved and immigrated to the United States of America. And 
my children were in school one day and they came back from school and they said, hey, dad, we learned about this thing called the Holocaust where you know, six million Jews died. And weren't you in Germany back then? Do you remember that? Wouldn't that be an awful experience to have, to have known that you could have done more? The fact is, I'm not an Assyrian, you know, I'm not an Armenian, you know, I, I, I'm, I don't even know what I am. I'm an American. And I've never experienced genocide in my family or the, these sorts of ethnic conflicts or, or whatever. You know, I, I don't know what that feels like. Some of you do know what that feels like from, a, from history, and you're witnessing history repeat itself. And you know those stories, but this is the first time it's happening when you're alive. And I, I'll tell you, one day, my two-year-old son and my eight-month-old daughter, I want to be able to give them a good answer when they come back from Western civilization. And they say, Dad, we learned about all these Christians that were in the Middle East. Did you know about that? This horrible stuff happened to them. Do you know about that? And I want to be able to say, I did everything I could to rescue everyone I could. I want to have a good answer uh, to that question. And we just, we just don't have time to sit around. So that's, that's all I have to say. Good afternoon. My name is Joseph Kassab. I am an um, Iraqi-born uh, uh, activist. I migrated to the United States in uh, late in the 70s. And uh, as you know, uh, or might know, that I really do care about our community in Iraq. I want to tell you and share with you some facts about uh, the community itself. A lot of people are speaking about the Christians of Iraq. I just want to tell you who the Christians of Iraq are. Um, the Chaldeans and the Assyrians and the Syriacs made the majority of Christians in ancient Mesopotamia, which is now known as Iraq. They lived as pagans for thousands of years before Christ, where they mastered two very creative civilizations, the Babylonian in the south and the Assyrian in the north. They became Christians in the early cradle of Christianity at the hands of Mar, Mari and Mar Edde, the, the disciples of St. Thomas, the apostle. St. Thomas was in his way to India to preach Christianity, and he stopped in Iraq, and he um, commissioned his uh, disciples his, uh, to help out with spreading Christianity in, in, that, in that area. Um, throughout the centuries, they survived the vicious atrocities of the Romans, the Persians, the advent of Islamist and forced Islamiz Islamization, the Mongols, the Tatars, the Ottomans, the brutal regimes, the uncontrolled armed sectarian militia, and nowadays they hope to survive the brutality of radical ISIS and the imposing of disgraceful Islamic Sharia laws and Islamization. As a result of these atrocities, Christian numbers drastically dwindled from more than 7 million before the advent of Islam to roughly 1.4 million Christians before 2003 war. But nowadays they count less than 400,000, as more than 250,000 of them are uprooted 
from the ancient Nineveh and its plains since the start of ISIS invasion in June 2014. They are now internally displaced persons, IDPs, living in awful conditions inside their own country, and thousands of them already managed to flee to Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, seeking protection and then hoping to be settled in, in the Western uh, countries. In Iraq before 2003, we had 350 churches. Today, there are fewer than 50 operational churches as parishioners are shying away from worshiping due to the to fear of attacks. Many churches have been destroyed, burned, or bombed. Sadly, some are desecrated, for ISIS is using them as, terror, as terror facilities and prisons. Also, many of our ancient runes and valued manuscripts dating back to the cradle of Christianity has been destroyed in an effort to wipe out our identity. We believe the U.S. administration and the U.S. foreign policymakers are obligated to exercise a unique role to resolve this slow genocide and to provide safety and protection for Iraq's most hurt, the ethno-religious minorities like the Christians and the Yazidis, because their plight in today's Iraq is a direct result of the U.S.-led invasion in 2003. For several years, USERF, which is the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, has been making its recommendation to the U.S. administration to consider Iraq as a country of particular concern to the United States based on violations of human rights and freedom of religion. The poorly planned and executed goal of Saddam's regime removal and the most recent withdrawal of U.S. troops left in its, way, left in its wake a vulnerable and decentralized national government. Sectarian warfare, warfare, I'm sorry, uh, loose and armed sectarian militia, and above all, lack of unity and trust among the people of Iraq. Also, the tipid army and corrupted security forces left Iraq unable to protect itself as, it, as its borders became very porous, inviting foreign terrorists to enter and cause harm and then, and, and then easily uproot the helpless and the, and the unprotected like uh, the Christians. In about one year now, our people are still in exile. There are no signs of hope that this situation will be resolved. People have lost their dignity. They despair, and as you all you know, despair means darkness. This hope can be realized if the U.S. administration and the international community, along with the people of good faith like you, can come to the rescue. The U.S. must finish what it started. This cancer of radicalization and forced Islamization has become intolerable in Iraq. It must be defeated and permanently. Thank you. 
Now, before I talk about the policy and propose durable solutions, I would like you to learn more of why this, this chaos and violence is happening in Iraq. We need to know that after 2003 war, several serious drastic changes took place in Iraq, ranging from Iraqi borders became unguarded, Muslims of Iraq became more sectarian than secular, armed sectarian militia are roaming in, in Iraq uncontrolled, kidnapping and killing the hopeless the helpless, I'm sorry, for uh, ransom, and an uninformed and I'm sorry, uniformed Iraqi army and security forces were furloughed, leaving the country undefended, and those who were let go to use their arms against their own countrymen and even joining the foreign terrorists like ISIS. Country's best professionals, educators, and scholars were assassinated, causing a severe brain drain in the country. And, of course, the self-centered political agenda, the, the self-centered political agenda of the new ruling parties are sharing with their uh, followers the wealth of Iraq in a major scheme of corruption ever known, le leaving the average Iraqi person to live under poverty level. The most drastic change among all, however, is allowing ISIS to brutally invade more than one-third of the country without putting any fight to defend its people. As a result of this invasion, more than 250,000 Christians and over 500,000 Yazidis became displaced in Iraq, and nearly 100,000 refugees fled abroad, emptying the whole Nineveh uh, province and its plains. As of today, the displaced Christians' numbers are as following. 95,000 IDPs in Erbil and its remote villages, 80,000 IDPs in Duhok and its remote villages, I'm sorry, 15,000 IDPs in Soleimania, 30,000 IDPs in Kirkuk, 47,000 refugees in Turkey, 28,000 refugees in Lebanon, 20,000 refugees in Jordan, and another 3,000 refugees scattered throughout uh, Europe. Unfortunately, what is certain that it will not be able to go home even if their villages are liberated because they do not want to face and live again with the local Muslims who they affirmed their allegiance to ISIS and helped identify for them Christian homes to be confiscated by ISIS. And the, as you all know, they mark them with a letter uh, Noon, noon in, in English means N, and that is exactly what, uh, you know, um, Reverend uh, Khalid already has, you know, uh, uh, produced. Uh, this is unfortunate that uh, this, this was allowed in Iraq, but, and I'm sure a lot of you remember the start of David during the um, uh, Nazi time where Jewish were identified as uh, with the start of David. So you can see that these guys are really... Uh, 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 very smart, they know what they're doing, and they know how to identify uh, their victims.
Why should we save uh, the Christians uh, in the Middle East and in Iraq? It is imperative to know that the, uh, that the absence of Christianity from the Middle East will lead to a great political ramification. Since Christians are known to be the voice of moderation, reconciliation, and mitigation during times of conflicts, which are very common in this particular region. This is in addition to their belief in accepting the other, promote coexistence and peace, not to mention their essential contribution to the society. All of this should strongly convince the Muslim world, which wanted to defend Islam values, to denounce Islamic radicalization, uh, radicalism, I'm sorry, and terrorism, and, and terrorism committed against Christians and others. Uh, a lot of you, I'm sure you're aware of that, that uh, the Christians are now caught between tough choices. You heard that from uh, Professor Mead, and he so eloquently stated that uh, people either had to stay or to leave. And, of course, uh, the community here in the diaspora is trying to provide its best uh, to help out uh, uh, their com its community in Iraq. And there are several thoughts of how to help out. So, yes, uh, one of the issues that we are uh, discussing is can the community stay, and if it stay, how can it defend itself? And, uh, of course, you heard from, uh, uh, from Mindy that we have already on the ground uh, what we call MPU, which is the Nineveh plane units that they just arm themselves and they are willing to uh, defend uh, their own community. But, unfortunately, they're not getting enough support and the support, the government of Iraq is not recognizing them as of today, and uh, I'm not sure the Kurdish government will give them enough support either. Therefore, the support should come from outside, and I'm not sure the laws will allow that to happen. So what we're suggesting is, uh, first, is to stay and defend themselves, and number two is um, to seek uh, the international community intervention and provide protection for these people. Uh, this is not as easy as you know. Uh, and so far, the U.S. administration and many, many uh, countries uh, in, in Europe uh, have not shown that particular uh, interest at this time. Although we have been talking to the U.N. member uh, states on this issue, but we haven't heard anything from them yet. The third solution is... Uh, is for them to leave, and some of them already made their mind that they want to leave, and if they leave, how we are able to open the gates for them. Uh, this is something is not easy, as we all know. We have been talking to the, as I said earlier, to the United Nations, uh, Nations uh, member states in order to open their gates for these people and uh, take them in. Um, there are some, uh, some pledges made, but so far it hasn't materialized. But the biggest problem is that these people, they want to come either to the United States or Canada or Australia. And the uh, United States uh, uh, administration, through many programs that they have, uh, one of them is called the U.S. Refugee Admission Program, it's not helping a lot. Uh, we start to see some uh, uh, partiality here, and uh, people are not taken to, into uh, uh, cushions of uh, Iraq mainly. They are not easily taken, so they've been put on, um, 
uh, on the back burner, let's put it this way. We have people whom they already to United Nations, went to United Nations in Turkey and Syria. I'm sorry, in Turkey and Lebanon just left like about six, seven months ago, and they've been given appointments for interviews just to recognize them as refugees for the year 2020 and 2022. So imagine uh, how much they can survive until then, especially when they don't have the money, especially when they are depressed and they are going through a very, very uh, hard time. So um, we are uh, proposing some solutions based on what is happening to the community. I want to cut through this short. And uh, um, so one of the most important solutions that we are putting on you know, for the uh, uh, Iraqi government and, uh, Ira and Kurdistan government is um, to help uh, alleviate the suffering of the people by uh, uh, recognizing or enshrining their rights, their civil and ethno-religious rights in the Constitution. That's very important. Uh, you know, it's really not, it's very vague. Uh, the recognition of the rights of the minorities, especially the Christians, in the Constitution of Iraq, and so is the uh, the draft of the uh, Kurdish uh, con con Constitution. So we want to see this happen. That is the first thing. The second thing is we want to, as, as you heard me, provide We want to see uh, an international protection for those who want to return and stay and to guarantee the return of their homes, lands, and properties. As you know, majority, all of them actually, their homes and their properties were taken away from them. Some of them are destroyed, some of them are sold to others, and uh, some of them are taken by others so they cannot just go back and live there anymore. Number three is support the newly created community-based Nineveh protection units, as we spoke, and a push and push for the calling of the semi-autonomous area in that particular uh, region and to establish maybe the uh, Nineveh Plain province. Uh, number four is uh, provide and better coordinate the targeted humanitarian relief to reach all. I want to share with you the fact that uh, a lot of uh, uh, help and relief is not getting into Iraq as, as, as it was expected. Uh, the donors are giving some of their uh, donations, their, uh, the country donors, uh, to government of Iraq. And uh, all of you know that the government of Iraq is, an, and it is the corruption, it's, it smacks among their officials, and therefore this money is not going anywhere. Uh, so we, we've been pressing on the Iraqi government through the U.S. administration to release this money and give it to the uh, people who became displaced. This is, that, this is hard, but it's not happening. Also, the, there is a very, a very uh, uh, uncoordinated uh, effort or, uh, to provide uh, relief for our people so people don't get to have enough relief. Uh, some of them, they live in remote areas that they were never, uh, they were never reached. We've been hearing a lot of stories. I don't want to share that with you. You've heard already some stories. But one of the stories I heard that, that the children uh, in one town, I, uh, in, it's in Shaklawa, north of Shaklawa, they are alternating between them uh, the, uh, the dinner meal. So in other words, today is Thursday. Um, I eat. The next day is my sister can eat. That's how bad the situation is even in Kurdistan because the relief is not getting there. 
Um, also, we want, we want to see, really, it's, this is very important, to ensure the passage, uh, the safe passage and resettlement by, by prioritizing assistance and admission to the Western uh, uh, countries for those IDPs and refugees who decided not to, to return. Uh, another uh, uh, recommendation or solution that we are also providing is for the U.S. to uh, expand its uh, foreign policy uh, tools to include filling the vacant uh, post of a special presidential envoy for religious minorities in the Middle East. This is really very essential for the U.S. to have, and this is, hasn't happened yet, and I don't know why uh, the U.S. administration is not taking a, a decision on that yet, although the Congress has approved it already. Uh, we also asking uh, securing an equitable repre representation of Christians in all branches of Iraqi and Kurdistan government and the National Assembly. Also, we want to see ensuring fair uh, allocation of Iraqi budget for the Christians in, in, a, in a proportion with its, um, yes, and with, with, um, uh, with, with its population density, uh, just like the Kurds and the Sunnis and the Shias, everybody is getting his own share. Why not the Christians in this case? And uh, lastly, we want to see uh, a, a significant investment in the education as a key tool for advancing religious freedom and pluralism and to mitigate radicalism. Before I close, I would like to talk uh, in brief on the touchy issue of migration and resettlement. At the extreme concerns of, of Pope Francis, Cardinal Filoni and Cardinal Sandry visited Iraq to show support for the church for the church flock and its leaders. The cardinals renewed their call and of the Holy Fathers for assistance from the international community in favor of all those facing persecution in Iraq, and especially for the country's suffering and, and sorely tried Christian community. This also echoed the Chaldean, the Chaldean patriarch, Sacco, recent speech to the, United Nations, to the United Nations Security Council to provide immediate assistance and protection for all Iraqis. It is a fact that the Vatican and the Church of Iraq has been calling for the discouragement of migration from Iraq. Finding solution for them to stay in their homeland is their, option, is their optimal suggestion, but it, it is a challenge for sure. Christians are on the run from Iraq as their situation is becoming more vulnerable. This is well descri described by many scholars like Nina Shea, who wrote in an NRO article that people are in despair and they need help. Uh, it is also well documented by many reporters and journalists who visited the area. This bitter fact is known for all, but the church ha has hard time accepting it and therefore no help is rendered to this uh, questionable uh, need. For those who argue that Christians should stay in their homeland, we say we are all for it, in the heart and in the mind, because we do not want to empty Iraq from its ancient people, and we will continue to advocate for their safe stay and guaranteed prosperity. But for those who decided not to return, we have no choice but to continue to advocate with UN member states, including the U.S., to open their gates for 
for uh, resettlement on humanitarian concerns. This may bring an end to the Refugees Act of desperation to reach the diaspora through taking dangerous sea voyages operated by smugglers, and I'm sure you heard a lot of uh, uh, on this. To conclude, time has come for the world policymakers, human rights activists, NGOs, think tanks, journalists, Church of America, and the U.S. community at large to confront the prospects of Christianity's uh, eradication in the region of its, in the region of its cradle and to ensure that their brothers and sisters in faith in Iraq are not forgotten. Any society that do not allow for religious freedom for all is a society that is giving the persecutors a step towards the ultimate power. My question is, where is, my question is, where is the uh, outcry by the Americans, especially the Christians against this persecution, and why the, and the partiality and the silence of the U.S. administration. Thank you. Is my mic not working? There. Okay. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, so, uh, so, so I think that everybody has obviously, I think, defined the problem very well, and has, and I think most people in this room care a lot about this issue. That's why they're here. Uh, unfortunately, also, I think what's been established is most of the country doesn't seem to know know enough about this or care about this. And so, I think one of the things. Uh, I think why Nina invited me is, as I have written a lot of uh, columns on this issue for USA Today and, and the Daily Beast, and um, I'm one of the few people, though, frankly, who who write about it. And I think one of the reasons that is is because people don't, people I think are afraid to tell stories where Muslims are the aggressors because it, it, it they're afraid to be calling of being called an Islamophobe, and that's of course insulting to Muslims because this is not about Muslims. This is about radical Islam. These are very radical. Uh, people, uh, especially with, with ISIS. And so I think that you see uh, a desire to create a false equivalency, like we saw the president doing, uh, bringing up the Crusades at the National Prayer Breakfast, um, at, at, almost to say, well, okay, so, so bad things are happening, but you guys did bad things too. Of course, you know, we'd like to stay in this century, maybe, would be helpful. Um, you, you know, if we're going to really take a, a serious issue um, as seriously as we should. Um, and I think that we can identify as many solutions as as I think a lot of people have laid out here, but until you can get the American people to really get behind them, it's not going to make a difference. And right now, I don't think, even if you have a poll saying they care about, care about ISIS, I don't think that they're engaged on the issue or even understand that there's a genocide going on. Um, and the only people that I really can see who can take a leadership role in this issue are the churches. And Frank Wolf has been very critical of American churches, saying, um, you know, where, you know, where is the broad movement? Where is the real um, energy behind this issue? I mean, the Christians are very powerful in this country. Actually, if you see when Christians do get upset about things, um, and, I, and I don't mean this in a snarky way, but if you look at what happened when Phil Robertson, the Duck Dynasty guy, 
lost his show. I mean, we saw Christians get really organized and make noise. And so Christians can get organized and make noise. They can be, um, as a Jewish friend said to me, you know, who's a journalist, said, why aren't Christians outside the White House just 24-7? Um, it's, it's, it's just it's mind-boggling, you know, to a Jewish person to see what's happening in the Middle East and that Christians aren't really uh, demonstrating and complaining and that the president really isn't going to do anything, if he's ever going to do anything, unless there is a massive outcry about it. He clear, This is clearly not something that he's going to engage in on his own. So, I, you know, to me, the, the, the clearest solution is, to, is for, for the church to get really engaged and to really have... Um, and we've talked, Johnny and I have emailed about this, you know, how, how to get them engaged, how to get them um, to really appreciate this, um, this issue. And I think that, um, you know, with, and, and, and then educating people, because also the conversation that happens a lot, especially in the media in the United States, is that the Christians are the persecutors. The Christians are the oppressors, historically, in the minds of, of the people who cover these things. And they can't quite get their mind around the idea of, poor, marginalized, black and brown Christians being persecuted. It's just not what they think of when they think of Christianity. And so I think that that, that also there needs to be a lot of education. And my interest in the topic came from the fact that I was married into a Coptic Christian family. And I'm still very close to them. And, um, and in fact, some of you may know Mama Maggie, who um, in, in, uh, in, she's considered the Mother Teresa of Cairo, and, and she lives her life under a constant you know, fear of being killed, essentially, for what she does um, and for living out her faith. So um, this is something that, that isn't just has to do with ISIS. This is just if you're a Christian in the Middle East, it's, it can be a very dangerous place to be. So um, I just say thank God for Nina Shea um, and for, for Samuel. I mean, truly, I really have, they have educated me so much on this topic, and it's very hard as a journalist to find people who are really reliable and really know their facts. And um, you can know that when they tell you something, you can take it to the bank and you can write it, and no one's going to come back and say it's not true. So, um, you know, I just think I'm so thankful for what they do and um, would love to hear your questions. So, so let me begin the conversation by um, discussing the changing map of the Middle East. We have an Iraq and a Syria that are no longer states. And they're unlikely to ever be states again. Um, Washington may still continue to deal with them as if there is an Iraqi government or the possibility of a Syrian government. But the reality is that, uh, as Walter Rosenmead has pointed out, we're going to see huge changes going on in that region. We're going to see places, as happened in Yugoslavia, that were once included various communities, now one state represents one nation. Is there a possibility for a Christian nation there? If that possibility exists, who's going to be its army? We've heard about the Christian militia. A militia of 500 might be possible to protect a couple of villages. Even if we give them 10,000 weapons, even if they rise to 5,000 people, it still does not mean that they will be able to have an army or to protect a state. Is it the future of the Christians then to be part of another state, a Kurdish state that will be including other minorities as well? Does this state mean that it has to be a Kurdish state with some fellow minorities there or a national or a citizen-based state that would include everyone? 
the history between the Kurds and the Christians has not always been perfect. There, we've heard in the beginning of the discussions about the Kurdish role in the Armenian genocide, for example. So, so how do we see that? But then is the other option of resettlement, both in the United States with limited possibilities under this government or any government. There's simply no place in the Western world for 10 million Christians from the Middle East, if we include the Copts and, and the Syrian Christians and others. If we're talking about resettlement in the countries themselves or in, in the neighbor, in the region itself, then we're looking at a scenario of the Palestinian Christian, uh, the Palestinian, sorry. You had Jewish immigrants kicked out of the whole Arab world, and today there are no Jewish refugees in Israel. They've become part of society. But the Palestinian refugees continue to live in camps until today. Is that the fate we're going to see for the Christians, living in camps, unable to become citizens of Jordan, of Lebanon, of others? What's the solution? I know it's a, it's a big question. I've laid out a, a horrible state, to say the least. But there doesn't seem to be that many good options there, or any option at all. Well, well, the Christians has already um, had asked for um, an autonomous area for themselves, just like what the, Kurd did, the Kurds did. And not only that, also they want to see if they can have a province of their own. As a matter of fact, they came up with a name which is uh, Nineveh, uh, Nineveh Plain Province. This came after the encouragement came from the Iraqi uh, um, president, Talbani, who suggested that the Christians should have their own. Uh, this is something that uh, we would like to see taking place. Uh, but as you said earlier, uh, there are, there are, it comes with a lot of ramifications. But more importantly is that the area itself in Iraq, especially in northern Iraq, is highly contested between the Kurds and the Arabs. The area that where Christians live lived and there are big numbers and that's where they were pushed out from is Nineveh Plain. The Nineveh Plain area is the size of Lebanon and um, there were more than 150,000 Christians live in that area. They've all been pushed out now. Now we, if, you, if we are assuming that all these people are going to go back, um, there will be a lot of things has to be provided for them. And this is, not this is not possible at this time with what's going on. The reason for that is, um, the reason I'm saying it's not possible, it is because the area is becoming very radicalized. And not only that, uh, 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 people who want to go back, they don't want to live with people who already hurt them and uh, joined uh, the radicals to, uh, against them. So it's not possible. I think it's going to create a lot of problems. So therefore, our chances of having a, a place we would love to have it, it is not as good as supposed to be, at least not nowadays. Mm -hmm. Anyone else would I like would, to? I would just say that it's, it's interesting if you think about 2005, 2006, when a lot of the discussion of a Nineveh Plain mm -hmm. province began. Mm -hmm to where we are today, you know, you're hearing different things from some of the church leaders and from the people who are living there day in and day out. And, and you're also seeing a lot of changes, and I'll just mention a couple um, that I've seen in the last 
uh, year even before, you know, as ISIS began in Fallujah and Ramadi and then, then moved on into Nineveh. You know, one is that a tremendous amount of cooperation that's happening right now among the Chaldean, the Orthodox, the um, evangelical even. This is something that was True. not at all present in That's Iraq right. 10 years ago. There's a tremendous amount of cooperation among those church leaders that has been brought as, as a number of people because of, you know, the, the martyrs have brought people together. Um, and then the other interesting thing is that the Kurds, who for so long wanted their own country, now that they actually control more land than they ever have controlled, it seems to me you're hearing them talk less about, about that. Um, that's a whole different topic, but all to say that what I hear in, in just the recent trips there is the Christians who have stayed throughout this time and have seen these varying political iterations and have seen the danger get not less, but have seen it grow more, do not really trust in a geographical area, as you're saying. What they would trust in is a, a you know, what we would call a rule of law, mm -hmm. an idea of a country that would allow them to have equal standing. And I've heard this said, and I've heard it said, I've heard church leaders say this to the Kurdish authorities, to the Baghdad authorities. We do not want to live apart from you. We want to live beside you. We want to come alongside you and be involved in, um, in organizations, in schooling, education, cultural endeavors alongside you. And it seems to me that if they're to have any role there, that it's going to have to look like that in some way. I'd be curious what you think. The problem is uh, Iraq at this time, it is not in its normal, uh, you know, uh, uh, situation and, uh, and, and, and as I said, uh, there are too many political parties ruling Iraq now, and there is a, a, a really very very vicious uh, sectarian uh, war between Sunnis and Shias. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't see it. And as you heard from uh, Professor Mead, when the the big fish fight, then the, you know the little ones get to, you know hurt. And that's exactly what's happening in Iraq now. If we are able to put the Sunnis and the, the Sunnis and the Shias and the Kurds, for that matter, together, and try to respect each other's, you know, uh, uh, agenda, I think then we will have a good Iraq. The other problem we have in Iraq, as you heard me, is the corruption. Um, uh, the, these people, uh, in, for many, many years during Saddam time, uh, they were deprived from pennies, not from dollars. And now, so many billions of dollars getting into their hands, they just don't know what to do with it. And the um, majority of this money is uh, uh, flying out of Iraq and invested in England and the United States and, and Europe. And I do not think this money will come back to the people of Iraq. So there is a problem. We need to, we need to solve from the problem from its base, not uh, just see whether we, what we want to do there. And this is not going to happen anytime soon. That's why our people are not very optimistic about staying in the, in the country. Yeah, I, I just two things occurred to me. The first thing is you know, I, I don't think we, could, we should give up on the thought of people in the Middle East being able to live free from fear whether they're Sunni, Shia, 
you know, Christian or, or whatever else, right? I mean, that, you know, and, and secondly, you know, it, it occurs to me that not a lot of people are really thinking about a regional solution, period. You know, so if you, if you talk, you know, the fact that there are 20 million Sunnis with no direct leadership, right? And so what we find, you know, ISIS comes into a town, and these are moderate, sort of moderate Sunnis, and so they don't agree with ISIS anyhow, but they end up submitting. And then you have the Shia militias, and they go in, and they don't discern who was with ISIS or who wasn't with ISIS, and you have the threat of, like, extermination. And so I just think that, you know, I, I'm concerned that people aren't thinking comprehensively. And secondly, you know, I, I'm concerned that the private sector isn't stepping up. I mean, there could be some really innovative solutions here. You know, like, like what if you... You know, the Syrian refugees aren't like the Somalian refugees. You know, the Somalian refugees is a different issue. They're uneducated, you know, to, to begin with. They were poor to begin with. They're decades of famine and such. But the Syrians aren't that way. They're educated. They were upwardly mobile. Everybody I talked to had two-story houses and cars and kids in college. I mean, there's a lot of raw material there to build a society. You know, so, so what if the private sector stepped up and the diasporan communities around the world worked with you know, a country, Kurdistan or Jordan or something, and set up a semi-autonomous zone that was a, that was a, a it was a, a, it was a Dubai. It was a, it could be a mini Dubai, you know, with the in, incentivizing of investment. You have raw material. You partner with companies around the world. I mean, there could be intermediary solutions with the private sector highly engaged, you know, in a profitable way that takes advantage of all of this, you know, that doesn't rely on bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. or in London or, you know, to, to, get all the chess pieces in a way where it's eventually going to work 30 years from now, but by the time more people hate each other, you know? I just think the private sector needs to step up while the government is kind of struggling through all of it. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank our panel, um, and uh, on that um, optimistic note, that pep talk, um, we're going to conclude our conference, but I want to thank all our spectacular speakers. Everyone was enlightening inspiring and extraordinary. I want to thank all of you for coming. I want to thank Sarah Stern and Ken Weinstein and my colleagues, Bill Ludy, uh, my other colleagues at the uh, Hudson Institute for helping me put this together and for supporting it all. And um, I want to tell everybody, go forth, um, do what you can do, raise your voice, and let's continue to work together. Thank you.